lot, man. Appreciate that. It's good to see you this morning. My name is Luke, like you said, and if we haven't met, because I know we have some guests here today, love to get to meet you after the gathering, after this service. I'm one of the pastors here. I love that I get to teach. It's one of the things that they let me do here. <laughs> and today we're going to be in Matthew 7. So if you have a Bible or you use an app or you just go straight to Google, that's going to be where we're at. It's Matthew 7 today. We're going through the same series we've been marching through the last three or four weeks, which is what we call Reclaiming Families. I know Randy just got up and spoke about the website and spoke about the ministry of Reclaiming Families. That is on purpose. We're doing this series along with the launch of that website and that ministry. We're calling it a campaign. We're moving together. Um, and I'm excited about it because let's be honest, there's a lot to reclaim for our families. As we just kind of take a deep dive on what it looks like to build healthy families that are walking with the gospel shaping how they talk, how they think, how they interact, how we raise our kids, how we do this thing called marriage, how we, how we have grandkids, how we handle in-laws, how we handle long-suffering, how we handle, as we looked last week, bitterness. Two weeks ago, how we looked at what our mission is as a family, how we march forward, what are our values. Three weeks ago, we looked at the story of where we came from. Why, why did we come from the family we came from? What did God mean in all of the good moments and the hairier ones, right? So we looked at all of that. Today is going to be very helpful, I think. In Matthew 7, we are looking at a teaching of Jesus. We're just going to look at two verses. But this is going to be where you're going to want to keep your Bible open. And we're going to be in verse 3 of chapter 7. Christ is teaching his disciples. And he says this. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, we've heard this a bunch, right? And the big idea of that passage is that we usually are tempted to judge others as sinful when we carry sometimes the same sin and oftentimes worse sins in our own life. And, and I feel like this is going to be a good passage for us because we're going to apply it to how we disagree with each other, right? In, in an age where we are all finding areas to disagree with each other, whether it's a vaccine or a mask or a political party, it is, we are, we are full of disagreements and arguments and fights and contentions and confrontations, however you want to call it, right? Where we bang into each other. It's full of it. But today we're going to apply it to the family relationship, specifically marriage, but family, whether it's your nuclear family or your extended family or your future family. And why? Because it's our closest relationships. And our closest relationships are the ones that carry the most familiarity. Because we know everything about those that we do life with, right? We know their past. We know their everything. And what that will do is it will tempt us to lean towards contempt and disregard for the people that are closest to us. Which is why we can fight so nasty, right? That's why we could just kind of take the gloves off. When we contend and confront and have disagreements with those that we do life with. In full honesty, in total disclosure, this is one of those passages I do not look forward to teaching. And it's because I am not very good at it, right? This is what James means in James 3 when he says, not many of you should hope to become teachers. Because if you're a teacher, you're going to be judged with a greater strictness, right? I blew the, I mean, when I was a young guy, I was like, yeah, 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 I'm sure that's true for some dudes. I'm telling you right now, I don't have this locked down. 
I don't have this locked down. Arguing to the glory of God is something I'm growing in. It's also things that I've failed in this week. This week, the Lord would remind me after an argument, I would stand there and think, oh, man, of course I'm preaching on that this week. Of course it's this week that we're doing a deep dive on that. It's not an instinct for me yet. I've got a lot of movement here. But that's normal, right? I mean, when we become Christians, we don't magically, instantly know how to do everything in a Christian way, do we? No. It's not like all your apps upgrade overnight, right? We, we walk through and we try to learn as what discipleship is, looking more like Christ over time. What we call sanctification, if you want to use a longer word, is where we take shape, the same shape as Christ. But when it comes to fighting, sometimes, especially in the earlier years, without a gospel to orient us and to tie off to, we end up fighting like the world, with worldly goals, using worldly words and worldly strategies. When my bride and me, when we got married, we were married in a church plant a lot smaller than this and a lot younger than this, and we were both pretty new believers. I'd say less than two years in the Lord. Um, And when we sauntered down the aisle, super excited, starry-eyed, we also had zero, zero premarital counseling, right? None, which means we had some really, really ugly fights. I was a driven, overachieving, firstborn, intense guy. And I married a redhead who could match my intensity pound for pound. She is far smarter than me. But God knew that it wasn't going to be even, so he made me more sarcastic than her, right? So I had that going for me. Listen, our fights were anything but civil. (laughs) anything but God glorifying. We have some vivid memories. We, we talk about it sometimes. We have these vivid memories of some of our more glorious fights. We have zero memories over what caused them. None, right? All I'd know is we'd be in the middle of a fight. And it was usually over something stupid like she got the wrong frozen burritos for me at the store or I left a shoe by the door. It'd be over something stupid and it would turn into World War III. But this is what I did know in the fight. I wasn't going to lose. Whatever it was, I wasn't going to lose. In fact, listen, I was so immature back then, it would come out of my mouth. I would say something like, listen, we're about to get in a fight. And what you need to know is I'm not going to lose. Again, no premarital counseling. Jesus was brand new to us, but that's where we were. I saw all arguments, all disagreements is something to either win or lose. And even as I say that, some of you are like, well, that's it, right? I mean, isn't that the way it is? It is not. It is not. In year one, a pastor told us how to fix our problem. It's the only real marital counseling I I remember. And he said this, Luke, no monopoly for you guys for the first ten years. Monopoly. The board game, right? Because apparently we could not handle board games. They gave us too many ingredients to the the big fights that we were having, right? Again, I wanted to win at all costs. She would get bored within 28 minutes. She has zero board game tolerance. She'd get bored in 28, 30 minutes, and she'd just want to go do something else. And that would just enrage me because that's quitting, and you just don't quit, right? You see it all the way through. So he just said no more of that. No monopoly, no fighting, right? Not the best, right? It'd swerve us around the problems. But, I mean, we would carry all of our old strategies of fighting and in, in banging into each other into that moment. And, th- and these, were, these were the basic jungle rules we lived by. Number one, avoid fights at all costs. Avoid them, right? If you could see it, 
steer around it. Number two, don't cuss, don't slam doors, don't stab each other, right? Don't do something that is physical. All right, number three, only use the silent treatment with great discretion, right? Only pull that, only pull that out, the nuclear option, when you really, 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 really want to manipulate them and bend them back over to your position. It just sounds a lot like our old lives, just rearranged into a Christian life. I think our big pro- uh, one of the big problems that we have in our family relationships, particularly marriage, but our family in general, is we just don't know how to argue to the glory of God very well. And even as I say that phrase, argue to the glory of God, some of you are thinking, is that a thing? Is that something that you can do? It is. We don't know how to do it. And much of this is modeled to us, right, the world we grow up in. Some of us in the room, we grew up in households that never showed outward vocal confrontation. You never saw mom and dad fight. That's just not something that ever really happened, right? No contention, only agreement all the time. And what that will produce over time are husbands and wives and parents who have a deformed view of confrontation. They almost see it as sinful to disagree with somebody outwardly, to carry a disagreement to another party who disagrees with you. They would see that as sin, but we don't have any evidence in the Bible of that being a sin of any kind. In fact, we see the opposite. We see prophets contending and confronting kings. We see Paul confronting Peter. We see Paul confronting Philemon. We see Jesus confronting his own disciples. We see Jesus confronting the Pharisees. We have a a Bible loaded with God-glorifying confrontations. Listen, you might have grown up in an environment where there were no fights, no arguments ever, and it might come naturally to you, but that doesn't make it healthy. Does not make it healthy. I mean, just, just if we zoomed out, just in general, in general, we are called to walk alongside each other in a way that we're helping them grow, but that, that's going to require confrontation. For, for me to help you grow, I mean, it might mean I have to bring a contention, an argument, and you might supply one of your own. Right? I mean, look at what church discipline is. And listen, this is not a sermon about church discipline. It does deserve its own sermon. And I think it's a beautiful thing that God has given us as the church. But even in the passage in Matthew 18, stay where you're at. He says, if your brother, this is Christ, not me, this is Jesus. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Well, what does that mean? It means you're confronting them. You're bringing an argument. There's argumentation happening. <laughs> If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you. What's going to happen then? More confrontation, more contention, more arguing. That every charge, he says, may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Listen, if this is happening like a church ought to be doing it, if this is operating in the way that we are called to do this, then there is confrontation and there are arguments on the road to restoration. That's what we see. But pretending that everything is fine so that we can avoid the mess and the discomfort of not bringing confrontation, that might bring glory to the moment, but it's glory for you. It's not glory for God. It's not a a God-glorifying thing. It's a self-glorifying thing because we're looking for our own comfort in that moment. Listen, hard conversations are hard. Agreed? They are hardest for families. But healthy families, just like healthy churches, require healthy arguments. 
And I say healthy because there are unhealthy ways to argue and contend. And Paul is actually going to draw like a, well, just a laser light on these. In Philippians 2, he's speaking to a young church. He says this, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Sounds like he's saying the opposite of what I'm saying, right? He even tells Timothy, his disciple, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. No disputing, no quarreling. But if I was standing there, and if you were standing there, we might be compelled to say, but Paul, what, what about when we disagree? What do we do with our disagreements? I mean, my, my view of reality is not the same as their view of reality, but we're supposed to be walking together. Are we not allowed to talk about it? What about in your own family? If you can't agree on where to go on vacation, or even more importantly, how to vacation, right? What, what if you can't agree on who cleans the kitchen? Who picks Chloe up from soccer? How, how to do Christmas? Whether you should take that job in another state? The billions of things that we disagree on. What do we do? If we don't argue, if we don't contend, what do we do with our disagreements? You see, what Paul is focused on in these two passages I just read is the infighting that is an attempt for you and me to dominate the other party, to reduce the other party. He is pulling us away from disputes and quarreling that has as a primary focus me being respected, me being regarded, me being glorified, me being right for the sake of being right. Well, listen, we can have gospel centered arguments, gospel-saturated arguments, saturated in the fact that our arguments are covered by the very fact that we are free to lose and free to be disregarded and free to be others thoughtful instead of self-thoughtful, fighting for the other person's growth at our cost. Listen, even our arguments can point to the gospel. I mean, and this is because, listen, all of us, you and me, we both have a visceral um, desire to be respected, regarded. It's, it's kind of in us. It's a guttural desire to be respected and regarded. This is why whenever we feel like we are not being respected by someone else, we usually try to tear them down a little bit so that their rejection of us doesn't hurt as much. Isn't that why we do that? I mean, here's the calculus behind it. If you want to look at it, it's, hey, she doesn't respect me, but I deserve to be respected. So I'm going to reduce her. I'm going to dominate her in this fight. I'm going to make her look stupid in this fight. Therefore, I'm going to win and she's going to lose. That way, her disagreement with me doesn't hurt. It doesn't reduce me because I've reduced her. It sounds so petty, doesn't it? It sounds more like a bar fight than it does a marriage. And I think we also learn this from the jungle of the broken world that we grew up in, where everything is about getting respect, getting regard, increasing the regard. And what the gospel does is the gospel subverts and tumps us over. And now, as a Christian, I am free, hear me now, free, that's the important word, I am free to invest respect in regard into others, regardless if they give it the same to me. Because that's what I see Christ doing. That's patterned after a king who, let's be honest, he deserved the regard and the respect of the entire cosmos, of the entire cosmos, and yet he forfeits the respect and the regard he deserved, and he put himself in the hands of villains like you and me that he knew ahead of time would be disrespectful towards him. He'd be disregarded, 
deeply that you would be regarded deeply. In fact, he'd be disregarded to death that we would be called children, friends, lovers. And now we're free, you and me, to walk in the same pattern, right? Because the visceral desire that we have to be respected and regarded has been met. And there's really no regard or respect you can give me that can be added to or supplant the respect and regard that God has given me. I don't require it from you anymore because I have it freely with what God has done for me. Right? So we're free to walk in the same thing. So we can honor those that we disagree with even though we know their flaws and failures. Even though we know their history. This is how we see it described in Jesus' life. This is a fascinating passage in Matthew 13. Stay where you're at. But Matthew 13, this is describing a scene. And this is an outcry, really, of people around Christ. He says, is not this, this being Jesus, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Are not all of his sisters with us? Where did then this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. Interesting. He's saying quite a bit here, but he's saying one thing for sure. And that's that the closer our relationships get, the more the regard can plummet. The more the respect can plummet. I remember whenever it became a little bit more public that, and this was back in college, when I would become a pastor. <laughs> and all of my friends who knew me, my hometown, would hear a, pa- a pastor, huh? Huh, interesting. Not a lot of people saying, well, that makes total sense. Yeah, well, Luke, we saw that coming a mile away. Nobody said that. Why? Because they knew me. The regard had dropped. The respect had dropped, right? This is one thing that we know. There is a way, though, to argue to the glory of God. There is a way to do that. There's a way for you and me to build stronger marriages by God-glorifying arguments. A way to build stronger parenting. Better relationships with our extended family. In-laws, aunts, that uncle. There's a way for us to do this. We'll just look back at the passage we just read. It's so short, I'm going to read it again. Verse 3, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your, uh, your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And then what we see is Paul kind of maybe pulling and remixing that a little bit in the New Testament, and he says this to the Romans in chapter 2, therefore you, he's talking to you and me now, You have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same thing. Right? This is what makes us terrible at arguing with each other. We lack a humility and an awareness, right, of who we are, number one, and what God has done, number two. We we lose it. We're walking around with a plank in our eye. And when blinded by pride, we stand as hypocrites and we will take arguments and we'll use them as tools for dominance, tools for self-glory. And we will judge others as less than us. And we will judge others as more in need of Jesus than we have need of Jesus too, right? And some of us even in this room are in long civil wars with people right now because you judge them lesser than you. 
you judge their sin worse than yours, and you judge your need of Jesus to be less than them. Listen, we've got really good news, really, really good news when it comes to this. And that is that we have one in Christ who had no plank in his eye, no speck in his eye to be removed, and he dies for us. God has judged Jesus in our place. It was a pure judgment. I mean, the judgment of God for the Christian is behind the Christian, not in front of the Christian, right? It's what, it's what in the nerd world we call penal substitution. That's why Paul says in Romans 8, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Judgment is actually in your rearview mirror. So if you are united in Christ today, it's behind you. It's behind you. The ledger has been balanced, right? So, I mean, I think there's this weird view that, that for a Christian, we're going to get to heaven. Whatever heaven is going to look like in that moment, and Jesus is going to recite all of our sins, all of the things that we've done that we shouldn't have done, and all of the things that we should have done and we did not do, and we're going to be like wringing our hands, wondering if he's going to spank us or not. And for the Christian, the judgment is behind us. We will be guilty, but the penalty for the guilt has been exhausted down to the last drop on Christ. Now, that's different if you were not united in Christ. That means that judgment is not behind you. Judgment is in front of you. Those charges will be read, and you will have to stand on your own righteousness at that moment, right? But if we're joined in Christ, the ledger's balanced. So, friends, that means that we are free. You have a freedom now. You're exonerated. You don't have to judge each other. You're actually free to have empathy. To look at others with regard, with respect. You are free from the need to demand respect. To demand people regard you. You're free from needing to be right all the time. Free from needing to be justified all the time. You're free to lose. Free to say I'm sorry. Free to say you are right. And man, this freedom totally changes the playbook for arguing. Totally. The goalpost has been moved. An argument is no longer something to win or lose, but it's a moment where we can image the gospel. It's a moment where to make God and reveal his beauty, we can celebrate what God has done in the gospel just by how we interact with each other, just by how we argue, the words we use, the the posture we take, the goals we're looking for in the moment. I've got four real quick things that we will see with a gospel-framed argument. This is going to be application points for sure. And the first one is this. When we are steadied by the gospel, the solution to any disagreement is not to figure out who is right or wrong, but how to serve the other. So the goal is not to win an argument. The goal is to carry a cross, right? I mean, look at your marriage. If you're married. And find yourself in this hot confrontation. And you are tempted to be right in that moment. I want you to remember that you are one flesh, not two. If your wife wins the argument, it does not mean that you lose. Right? If you win the argument, it doesn't mean that your spouse loses. I mean, can we all agree you've won some arguments that you've really lost in? I've felt those where I walk away with a little bit of a fist pump and realize I lost a lot more ground than I gained just then. Right? Small victory. It takes that off. The gospel says there's nothing to win, there's nothing to lose. You are one flesh, helping each other, serving each other, sanctifying each other, growing with each other. 
better questions would be, how can we grow right now? How can you and I, as a married couple, disagree with each other and grow together? How can I, as a husband, be a part of my wife's growth? And how can I recruit and invite her into my growth in the very same moment? How can we celebrate God in this moment? Those are questions that we are now free to ask. And it's not just your marriage. Think about your your parents or your siblings, your kids even. You find yourself in, in that monopoly moment where everyone's just being not so civil. Ask yourself, what's the goal of my argument right now? What does my gut want? What am I just insatiably hungry to get right now in this moment? Am I gospel steadied or am I just looking to win? What is it? Again, the goal is not to win. It's to carry a cross. And number two, when we're steadied by the gospel, arguing is no longer something to avoid, but something to schedule. This is going to be odd for some of you, maybe first for some of you to ever hear it, but I am a big believer in calendaring hard conversations. Big believer. I think it's stewardship, that's why. I think it brings some purpose to the equation. It's intentional, right? Plan room for your disagreements. Can we agree that not every time is a good time for a hard conversation and an argument? There are some dumb times to, to argue, even if you have a gospel intentionality to it. The location of an argument is a lot. It's a lot. If you're married, plan your hard disagreements for times of peace. When you are most affectionate, least triggered, when the heart is warmest, when the soil is ready, that's when you do it. Right? That's when you do it. I get why no one wants to do this. It seems like a dopey move, right? Like a real fast way to screw up a date night. Right there, Luke. Thanks. But everyone's hearts are ready for the moment. And remember, the goal is not to win an argument. It's to carry a cross. This is why I like this in Proverbs 6. Stay where you're at. This is a proverb, and it starts with go to the ant. Go to the ant. She prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. What I love about this passage is it's a very beautiful picture of intentional investment. Intentional investment. Build in one season, harvest in another. It's really not that difficult. Or you have an option. He gives you the option. You could be accidental. You could just live accidentally and let the moment find you. Of course, it will find you unprepared, and it will find you unready, and you will be lacking, and you will be impoverished. That's, that's the overall idea of this, right? And so often when we argue with those that are closest to us, the arguments just kind of find us. We don't plan them. We don't schedule them. We just trip on them, and there they are. Hearts aren't ready for that. Motives are commingled. And we're just looking to not lose in that moment. Our hearts just keep saying, well, what about me? Well, what about me? It's better to find and develop your disagreements whenever everything is warm, affectionate, and receptive. I like the way Russell Moore says it. He says it far better than I do. He says, plan your romantic getaways during a fight and plan how you will fight on your romantic getaways. So smart. Sounds so stupid, right? Sounds so stupid to do that. It is so smart. It is so smart. When I go on retreats with my wife, those are when we schedule are harder ones. I've scheduled moments that we're going to talk back and forth that I know 
are going to probably be a little tense from moment to moment. I'm a big believer in this. In fact, on the Reclaiming Families website, there's a blog we just wrote this week on how to ruin a date night where I talk a little bit about how to steer your date nights and your retreats as a couple to engender these types of conversations. These types. And it's not just relegated to marital relationships, but even with your kids, your parents, your siblings, your cousins, your friends. It doesn't have to be you just you get your calendars out. It could just be some forewarning. Like, hey, listen, I know we've been struggling to get through this thing that we keep arguing over. I know it's been hard for us, but I don't want to fight. I want to argue it out. I want, to, I, want to, I want us to come to an agreement, and I, and I think we can. So let's just maybe push this to next week or two weeks, the next time we're together. In fact, between now and then, you tell me how I can pray for you and pray for your heart as we go through this. And this is where I need you to pray for my heart as we look through this. Right? Sounds like a lot of work, doesn't it? And then just with this determination, and sometimes I will say this with words, and listen, I will not let this turn into a fight. I'm not going to let this get nasty between you and me. It's not going to happen. Number three, when steadied by the gospel, our disagreements open the door to celebrate God's grace. This is really helpful. Listen, celebrate the evidence of God's grace in the life of the person that you're arguing with. I know you aren't going to feel like it because you're arguing with them and you're trying to win. You're trying to not lose. But this is a great opportunity to be thankful for those that we disagree with. Let them know how they're helpful for you, how you love them, how God uses their gifts to serve you. It could sound a little bit like, listen, I know we disagree on this. and We might not ever find a place of agreement, to be honest with you. But this is what I love about you. This is what I love. This is what I've always appreciated about you. Like every time you do this, I see God in motion. Every time you you say this phrase, I feel like I see Christ a little bit more clearly. Friends, listen, that will de-escalate something right there. That will. It's an encouragement to them, but it's more of an act of worship. Because let's be honest, they're praiseworthy because of God's work in them. You're worshiping God in that moment. I love watching saints... Um, old preachers, salt of the earth, theologians. Um, I love to see them come from different viewpoints and sit on a stage or in a couple of chairs and argue over nerd stuff, right? My YouTube watch list is full of these things, arguing over something like ki- whether to baptize kids or not, the spiritual gifts, you know, whether what, what kind of instrumentation you have on a stage during a worship service, stuff that you would never watch in your YouTube account. I don't love watching it because of the subjects. I could, I'm like you, I could care less about half of them. But what I love is to see these men or ladies who vehemently disagree with each other handle each other with respect, encouraging each other, using kind words, laughing, enjoying each other. I am more fascinated with that than the topics that they're arguing over. And then finally, number four, when steadied by the gospel, our disagreements will open the door for us to empathize, truly empathize and be honest. Right? If you want to de-escalate a confrontation, it's the best way to do it. Just say, hey, listen, this is what I hear you saying. I hear you saying this. I'm pretty sure I'm not hearing what you really want to convey, so edit what I'm saying so I can understand you better. Right? Because remember, the goal isn't to win an argument. The goal is to carry a cross. We are free to represent the other party well. I think what we are all groomed to do growing up is to build a straw man for the person that we're arguing with. 
like a position they don't represent, trying to trip them up and catch them in a mistake so that we could capitalize on it and finally win the argument, bending them down to a law so that we win and we're victorious and we are regarded and respected. That's typically what we've grown up doing. That's what the world has taught us, and that doesn't help anyone. It just dominates. Never attribute to someone a position they don't hold. But enter into their shoes and find a place of empathy. Help to actually help them re-say what they're trying to say stronger. Make their point stronger. You, you know what they're trying to say half the time. Don't take the bait by making them look like a fool. If you think you understand what the other party's trying to say, help them have a more cogent statement with more power to it so that whenever they hear you re-say what they're trying to say, they're like, yeah, yeah, that's exactly what I'm trying to say. That's, emp- that's empathy. That's walking with them, not trying to fight them. Listen, friend, it sounds like you're trying to say this. Is that right? I want to get it right. Help me get it right. Do you see how the posture is changing when we carry a cross? You see how it changes how we interact with each other? Where I want to help rivals, I want to win. Where I want us to grow rivals, I demand your respect. It changes everything. Listen, we're about to finish this part of the service, and there is so much for us to repent for as we stand and as we sing and as we take communion together as a church. There's going to be a lot for us to repent for as we move through this. Are you trying to win arguments right now with those closest to you? Why? Why? Are you stretching for glory, stretching for respect and regard? If you are, It's because you have not comprehended that the gospel has already given it to you. You're fighting for something you already have. You are regarded. You are respected. You are loved. Turn from arguing for your own glory. Bring your disagreements where you have them. Be honest and empathetic. And let God be beautiful in that moment. Let him be beautiful. Now listen, if you're listening and you are maybe not a Christian or you're a skeptic, you're watching online... You're not sure about the Jesus thing. You're curious about it. Maybe you got, went to a church camp when you were a kid and you don't really know what that means. Some of this might be new to you. In fact, if you squint your eyes whenever you listen to a sermon like this, it, it sounds like four ways to become a doormat. That's what it sounds like, right? But is not the gospel God come to earth to be trampled by villains he came to save? <laughs> he was a doormat. He was mocked. Destroyed, both by the blood on our hands and the beautiful and creative will of God. He deserved all the respect and regard in the universe. We gave him none. If this way of arguing seems otherworldly to you, that's because it is. If it seems backwards from the way you grew up, that's because it is. It's because it is. Jesus changes everything. Everything he touches, he changes even the way we fight, even the disagreements we carry. He frees us from the jungle laws of this world. And listen, even more importantly, if you're a skeptic or a searcher, hear me clearly when I say the judgment of God for your sins, if you are not in Christ, is not behind you. It's before you. Whenever you appear in the end of all ends, however that looks, and we speculate to a large degree, However that looks, you will either hide 
under the righteousness of Christ, depending on him, or you will hide underneath your own righteousness. It's a tale of two righteousnesses. One of them is supreme and will carry you into the family of God. The other one will doom you. So really the question is, is judgment of God, do just judgment of God. Is it behind you or is it in front of you? Because when we take communion here in a minute, I'm not going to hope for you to take communion with us as some mechanical thing. I'm, I'm, wanting, I'm wanting to submit that you take Christ instead. Because what Christ has done is he has rightly taken the judgment of God justly, not for being himself, but for being us. And in that moment, in that moment, judgment was justly delivered. And if we are in Christ, we're free. We're free from the fear and the reality of being judged. So go ahead and stand with me. We're going to take communion together and we're going to pray, set. And like I said, listen, if you're a Christian and you're not from Legacy, totally invite you into taking part of this moment with us, right? This is for all Christians. If you're not a Christian, I'm really glad you're here or I'm glad you're watching one of the two. I'm glad you're here, but don't worry about this. This, this is a beautiful moment that we, we would, it's kind of like a family reunion around a, a meal, I guess is another way of looking at this. It's not a mystical thing, but it is a very supernatural and spiritual thing for us. And so we've got someone, yeah, Chase has got those. If you need one of these and you neglected to get one when you came in, we, he'll, he'll grab one of those for you. There's a quote I want to read to you. It's from uh, Tremper Longman and Dan Allender. And they say, our souls are wired for what we will never enjoy until Eden is restored in the new heaven and earth. We are built with a distant memory of Eden. Okay? Communion helps us remember a place we haven't been to. That sounds odd. It helps us remember a place we haven't been to, and it helps us remember a place we are headed towards, a place where there is no more contention, no more winning and losing, no more confronting, disputing, no bitterness, no arguing, no infighting, no dominating, no disagreeing even. Communion helps us remember the place of the cross affectionately, and it helps us remember the place of another banqueting table to come where we sit with a new wine and a new bread with our new king and a new family and a new heaven and a new earth. It does both. It's a pivot place for us. And so as we find that today, we do so in repentance. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you for being good and sweet and kind and thoughtful and fatherly. We thank you for being majestic and in control and in command. We thank you for, for being creative and for being brilliant. And we adore you. We regard you highly. And Lord, as we take this moment where it's a symbol of you being disregarded to death, we do so in remembrance of what it has done for us in taking judgment and what it is preparing for us, a place of no judgment. So Lord, as we take this bread, we do so in remembrance of the body that was broken on the cross. We take your bread. And Lord, we take this juice as a, a memorial of the blood that was spilt. Because we know that when judgment was delivered justly and perfectly, 
It, it didn't come without hurt. There was a cost to it. That Jesus truly died. His blood was spent on that cross. He did not pass out. He did not faint. It was not a show. He expired. And now, as the Holy Spirit raises him from the dead, and the same Spirit alive in us today is his believers, we celebrate. This is a memorial of a new life, a new wine. That the blood of Jesus runs in our veins. We are a family of royalty, not because of anything we've done. So, Lord, we take this in remembrance of you. So, Lord, as we go into worship, musical worship, we repent. There's a lot for us to repent for. This week, as I said, this week, I caught myself looking for a win. Looking for a win. Not looking to lose. And then you just remind me so softly, so kindly, son, what are you doing? What are you doing? This isn't, this isn't the better way. Lord, I know that there is infighting here with families, with missional communities, with people at work, with the world. There, there is contention. Help us not be a people that claim a risen Christ and yet fight like the world. Give us a freedom to lose, to carry a cross into an argument. Give us the freedom to do that. And show us even today where we need to make good on some past fights. Show us today where there are some phone calls that we might need to make today, some hard conversations that we might need to schedule. Help us manage this better for your glory, not for ours, but for your glory. And even when we fail at that, that we would celebrate the grace that you have given to us. That we could be miserable at arguing and you won't love us any less. We could could really screw this up and just continue to be looking for wins and it doesn't deflect your kindness towards us. But we are free to be totally different here as well. So we need your Holy Spirit to empower us to be a different people in a very different world. And Father, finally, I just pray for those souls and those hearts that are wrestling with the idea of judgment, a judgment to come, and what that means. And Father, that you would show them with crystal clarity that their righteousness cannot meet the task. That the only thing that, that, that we really all claim in total, I guess, harmony is that we all hide behind the same Christ as the church. I need Jesus just as much as the best of us and the worst of us. So, Lord, I just pray that you would work in the hearts of those who are are grasping and grappling with the idea of judgment. That they would hide underneath the judgment that landed on Christ. That they would call you Lord. That they would submit to you. That their hearts would be changed. That they would leave the world and enter a kingdom. So, Father, we love you, and we enter this time of worship in your name and for your glory. Amen.